If you would, open your Bibles, please, back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, There is a particular preacher that I really enjoy listening to. I've benefited from his ministry a lot. And I think every single message that I've heard him preach, he begins with the words, open your Bibles, please. And I thought, you know, that's a good way to start. We can start with stories. We can start with things to capture our attention. But really, we want to look to the Word of God. So open your Bibles, please, to Matthew uh, 16. And I'm going to read the passage with you again, as we did last week. And, uh, and then we'll get into some various comments regarding it. The passage that... Uh, is really under scrutiny or study this morning, if you will, is verse 24 through verse 27 of Matthew 16. However, for context sake, we're going to read again, uh, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, That you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. I want to just make one comment, because we didn't touch on this last week, but in case this verse 20 is stumbling anyone, wondering why would Jesus command his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ, I think as we read the next three verses, uh, it becomes evident why he would tell them this. The answer in short is that although they believed he was the Messiah, the Son of God, they had the wrong perception of what the Messiah would do. And so he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his works. Let's pray one more time. Our Father, we do thank you again as we look into your word together. And our Father, you know my heart, feeling the most unworthy servant to present such deep and challenging truth. So I ask your help. I pray that you would be with us as we open your word. Give us understanding hearts. Give us discerning minds as we uh, read it, contemplate it, and seek to apply it to our lives. Do the work that only you can do by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciate Andrew's selection of songs this morning. As you may have noticed, many of them had the thought of following Jesus, following Jesus. And indeed, that is uh, perhaps the, uh, the encapsulation of Matthew 24, or, I'm sorry, 16, 24 to 27, following Jesus. Last week, we emphasized verses 13 through 23 as we emphasized, and I trust that it hit home to you, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is he? And what has he done? That was the emphasis last week. And uh, the thought that I hope was conveyed is that my conviction from reading this text, from studying the word of God, from looking at the life of his apostles and disciples and followers, is that if you are not gripped by the person of Christ, if you are not gripped by the work of Christ, you'll never be gripped by the call of Christ. There's a confession that's made here. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That has to do with who he is, right? That's exactly what it is. This is who you are. Jesus would then go on to to, uh, unfold to them what he would do, his work. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. He's going to be mistreated. He's going to be put to death ultimately. That's his work. What would be done? May God help us to, to, to put our minds, to set our minds to being gripped by the person and work of Christ. If the confession concerning Christ and the cross of Christ have not gripped you, I hardly think that the call of Christ is going to grip you this morning. You've got to understand. You've got to not only understand, but be gripped by who he is, that he is the son of God. And by what he's done, that he went to Calvary, he died there. As we remembered this morning, absorbing the wrath of God. For you and for me. May that sink into our hearts. I could go on on that, of course, because it is the uh, the central point of the scriptures. The central point. But we'll move on into the call of Christ. So uh, there was a PowerPoint, but it's very, very brief. So if it makes it up good, if not, it's okay. Uh, We considered the confession concerning Christ, the cross for Christ, and today the call of Christ in Matthew 16, 24 to 27. Now, before I begin digging into the passage with you, I uh, want to address a question that comes up very frequently as you listen to this text being expounded, as you read commentaries, and uh, articles and things that pertain to this call. Many call it a call to discipleship, and that it is. But the question that often comes up is, is this call of Christ directed to the unbeliever, the unconverted, or to the believer, the converted? 
Is it a call that's directed to the Christian or to the non-Christian? And uh, I want to suggest to you, okay, and I, and I present this to you, you study the scriptures because it's a challenging question, and I have heard many good brothers on different sides. Some would stand fast that this is not presented to the unbeliever. Some would stand very firm that this indeed is a call to the unbeliever for salvation. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that this call of Christ goes out in following him to both the unbeliever and to the believer. That the principles that he lays out here are the principles of of true repentance, of true faith in Christ to the unbeliever. But indeed, the principles that are here are applicable, foundational to the believer. Paul would say in Colossians 2, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that would be salvation, so walk in him. How did you receive him? Well, some of the principles that are laid out here, in fact, I would suggest all of them are at play in the mind and heart of the unbeliever who's truly converted. The principles that are going to be laid out here are the thoughts of total surrender, of death to everything that you thought was something. Could the unbeliever hardly come to God with hands full of their good works, of their own righteousness, of their accomplishments, and say, well, God, here they are. I I would like salvation, but here's everything I've got. Uh, uh, Receive it, please. No, the unbeliever could not do that. Those things, in order for the unbeliever to come to true faith, true repentance, the essence of true repentance is total surrender. I've got nothing to give. I've got nothing to bring to you. One must come to the place of total denial. That's what he's going to say here. Deny himself in order to come to saving faith in Christ. You cannot come with your hands full and offer up to God all of your good works and accomplishments and self-righteousness. It's not going to do it for you. But it's total surrender. But indeed, to the believer who would seek to go on in following Christ, the principles remain the same. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Look for one minute. Because this to me is important. And uh, look at Galatians chapter three or chapter two. Galatians chapter two. Listen to what Paul says. And, and I, again, I hope that I haven't lost anyone yet. I'm just making the point right now, or I'm trying to, by God's grace. That the call of Christ to follow him is a call that goes to both the believer and to the unbeliever. The context there in Matthew 16, Jesus calls his disciples. Mark would tell us that he called other people, the people that were around. And he said, if anyone. So is that to the believer or to the unbeliever? It's to all. Was he speaking to the disciples? Indeed he was, but there were many others there that heard it. The call went out to all. 
So is this to the believer or is it to the unbeliever? I'm suggesting to you that it is to both. And I believe that the New Testament writers will bear this out. Paul would say in Galatians 2 and verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified, that's declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Friends, if you're here today, you do not know the Savior. You must come with empty hands recognizing, dear God, I've got nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. All of my strength I I have found, as Romans 5 said, I'm without strength. All of my smarts, all of my intellect, I've recognized, like Paul said, the world through wisdom did not know God. I've got nothing to offer in my strength and my smarts. All of my substance, everything that I could gather up and offer to him, it is nothing. We come empty. And indeed, my stock as a man, my heritage, my family ties, that could be the son of an elder, the nephew of an elder, it means nothing. Nothing. You come empty to him to be justified by faith. That's declared righteous. That's true repentance. That's the gospel. That's to the unbeliever. But then look at what he says. And you all know this very well. Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by my good works. Now my strength comes into play and I can show God all that I've got. Now my intelligence comes into play and my my substance and my family. No, that's not what he says. Don't let me lose you there. I've stopped reading the scripture. What he does say is that the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. So who is this to? The principles that Christ has laid out here In Matthew 16, principles of total surrender, of taking up your cross, putting everything to death. It's nothing before him. I've got nothing to offer. These are the principles. These are the essence of true repentance. These are the principles of justification by faith. I've got nothing to offer. I simply receive you, Lord. But indeed, the life that I will go on to live is now not lived in my own strength, in substance, but indeed in total surrender. I still have nothing, Lord. I still put to death the deeds of the flesh. I still put to death my own strength, my own intellect. Read 1 Corinthians 2 as Paul would go to present the gospel He would not present the gospel with wisdom of words. Even after being a believer, his smarts were just, get out, get out. I don't want them. Total surrender. Death to self. Death to all that I have 
and am. That is the essence of saving faith, of true repentance. That is the essence of the victorious Christian life. That's, that's what I hope to communicate to you. So, as we go back to Matthew 16, back to Matthew 16, we find the call of Christ. The call of Christ. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone, if anyone desires to come after me, it is, as Nate lays it out in his book, an invitation. We all love to receive invitations, don't we? We love to receive invitations, most times. There's a wedding going on or some big event. Did you get invited? Did I, did I get invited? An invitation. We love to receive invitations. Here is an invitation that went out to all. There have been many an ad campaign, many a commercial that have solicited certain types of people. We want the beautiful, or we want the strong, or we want the stars, or even we want the sleepless or the sick. But this call of Christ goes out to all. This is open to each of you here today. It's open to to someone like me. If anyone, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. There is a story told of a man named Ernest Shackleton. And I'm no great historian, but I benefited from this. And some of you have heard this perhaps before. Ernest Shackleton, a great explorer of past. And the story is told, although some dispute it, I share it as an illustration. The story is told that he put out an ad in the newspaper for his next expedition. And the ad read like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, but honor and recognition in the event of success. Whether that's true or not, I have no way of verifying. But it it does illustrate for us the severity of the call of Christ. Many people will hear this invitation and at face value, what kind of an invitation is this? What kind of an invitation is this? The world will often put out invitations for for self-advancement, for self-promotion, for prosperity or prestige or position or something else like this. But the call of Christ, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What kind of a call is this? I want to suggest to you this morning, as many have termed this passage, the cost of discipleship. And that is true. The invitation of the Lord is in all sincerity. Sometimes when we get things, you know, there's there's fine print. Sometimes you hear a commercial and the fine print is read at 100 miles an hour because they hard you want, hardly want you to hear it. 
and they put out pictures of people that are happy and joyful and whatever it is, and you take this medicine and things will be well with you. But the fine print, oh, it's hard to find at times. But the Lord Jesus lays it all out here. This is an offer, an invitation made in all sincerity. He puts it out exactly as it is. And so many have called, have said, term this the cost of discipleship. And indeed, following Christ is costly. It is. But one preacher termed his message on this passage, the bargain of discipleship. The bargain of discipleship. What does that suggest? Yeah, it may cost you, but you're going to get something in return. Like this ad that was put out supposedly by Ernest Shackleton with all of these awful things like low wages and bitter cold and long hours of complete darkness and perhaps not a safe return. But in the event of success, honor and recognition. In the case of Christ, I can tell you this, he is promising success if you will follow him. Follow him, there will be success. That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Success is promised. And with that will be honor and glory. Let's not think even for a moment though that the calls of Christ as severe and radical as they are are any different than the calls of God from the very beginning. Think back to the beginning for just a minute. Think of a man like Noah. Here was a man who was, who was blameless. He obeyed God. He followed God. He was an obedient servant. And God would say to him, Now, Noah, I want you to start building an ark. This was the command of God. This was the command of God. An ark, a boat, I would imagine Noah would say, I don't even know what that is. I've never seen one before. It had never rained. Why would I need a boat, God? I don't, well, that's not what Noah did. Genesis 6.22 says, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded. This was a radical call. Start building a boat in the middle of dry land. Indeed, Noah, that's what I want you to do. A few pages later, we're introduced to a man named Abraham. And Abraham, well, he's commanded many radical things. But just at the very beginning of his life, Abraham is called to by God, saying, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to show you now but I will show you. Get out of my country. Get out of my family. These are the ones I love. These are the ones you've given to me. Leave my father's house, the place of security, and I take it success. Leave that. This was the call of God. The point I'm making is that the call of God has always been radical. It's always been a matter of the word of God, and will you trust and obey? That's as simple as that. This is the command of God. Genesis 12, 4 says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Not illustrated to him, not demonstrated to him, not put into picture form, but just simply commanded. 
and Abraham went out exactly as the Lord had spoken. So the call of God to mankind has always been radical, has always been severe and challenging, but has always been the most rewarding, the most rewarding. And so the invitation is made. If anyone desires to come after me, we're going to go back to that word desires, but just for a moment. The call is made to anyone. But the call is made to anyone to come somewhere or unto someone. And as you can read there, it is a call to the masses, to the people, if anyone desires to come after me. And he's going to repeat at the end of the verse and follow me. So the the crux of this is a call being made to any and all who would follow him. What does that imply? It implies we get to be with him. We get to be with him. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, follow my example, although we should. But what he does say is follow me. What this meant to the disciples, what this means to you and I, is that the call is being made for you and I to enter a path with him. As invitations come to us from time to time, the importance level of the invitation is determined by, at times, the importance of the person. If you received an invite from uh, uh, from the Renth house, you might say, well, we get to see them every Sunday. It's probably enough as it is. I don't know. We'll see about this. But if you got an invitation from the White House, oh, well, the White House. I want to go there. That's where all the important people are. The one who's calling you today, the one who called the disciples in the masses to follow him, to be with him, is the one who holds the highest place in heaven and earth. He is the most powerful, the most loving, the most compassionate, the most wise person. Why would you not want to follow him? If anyone desires to come after me and follow me, is the way the verse will end. There is a condition that's made here, and it is the condition of desire. Though the invitation is open to all, it's only applicable to some. This is a sincere appeal, a sincere call, a sincere invitation. There's no manipulation. There's no deception. It's all laid out for you. Yet it is to those who have desire. He does not say, I will force everyone to follow me. But he says, if anyone desires to come after me, or if you have the King James, if anyone will. Come after me. It's an interesting study to break down that word desire. As I said, the King James translates it will. Will. If you look at all the definitions of the word according to Strong's, you, you can come to the, to, the, to the determination that this desire is a decision of the mind. It is a commitment of the will. And it is a purposing of the heart. 
It encompasses the full man. This is not wishy-washy, oh, I'm attracted to him or anything like that. But it's a conscientious, heartfelt, thought-out decision. Will I follow him? A decision of the mind, a commitment of the will, a purposing of the heart. Do you desire to be a follower of Christ? If there is no will, there is no way. There is no way. We keep this in mind as we, as we seek to help one another, right? Sometimes a godly pastor, shepherd, will uh, seek out those who are wandering as he should. But sometimes the conclusion is made that this person simply does not want to follow Christ. And at that, while we may love and pray and even at times pursue, we recognize we cannot force them. Christ would not force anyone to follow him. But it would be a decision of the mind, a commitment of the will, a purposing of the heart. If there is no will, there is No way. Have I really set my mind? Have I really committed my will to follow him? Have I purposed in my heart as Daniel purposed in his heart? Have I purposed in my heart to follow him? I want to suggest to you again, and not to go back into it in detail, but if you sit here today and you take an honest examination of your own mind and heart and will, and you say, I, I, I just don't. I just don't. I don't desire to follow him. My only plea to you would be to go back and consider with all sincerity who it is that's calling and what he's done for you. Allow the Spirit of God to arrest the mind and the will and the heart based upon the reality of who the Son of God is and the work that he's accomplished for you. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. There are some requirements or some conditions, I suppose you could say, besides desire. He would say, let him deny himself. I've talked about this a little bit. The word means, at its its essence, to totally disassociate yourself with, deny. It would be something like Peter's denial of Christ in Matthew 26. And you could read the whole thing, but Matthew 26 and verse 74, he, Peter, began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know this man. Peter's denial illustrates for us what it is to deny oneself. It is to totally disassociate with, to take the self, the desires, the ambitions, the dreams, the goal, and to dethrone them from your heart. I want to read to you a quote from A.W. Tozer. He said this, In every Christian's heart... There is a cross and a throne. And of course, this is not scripture, so you can nitpick this if you want, but I take it at face value and I have benefited from it. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. 
And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement. That's the denial. It's a total dethronement of yourself, your ambitions, your passions, your your desires, all of it subjected to the will of God, surrendered to him. And I have been personally so challenged by this call of Christ to take time to take everything that God has put into my hands in my life, like home, cars, job, all these different things, and just to say, Lord, here they are with open hands. I'm not going to grasp them. They're there. They're part of my life. I feel this is where you've put me. I trust many of you can relate. This is where you have me. But here they are, Lord, with open hands. What will you have me to do to totally surrender? To totally surrender. A.W. Tozer would say, we remain king. I like this line. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul. That's an interesting word. I like that. He put that together, I think. Of man's soul. And wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Strong words. Deny himself to dethrone all that I am and have, all that I find dear. What did Paul say in Philippians 3? Let's read this for one minute because I think he illustrates this so well for us. And I can hardly read Philippians 3 now and not think that Paul must have had this in mind because of several of the terms that he uses, terms like gain and loss, which we see in this passage. Paul says, though I might have confidence in the flesh. Where am I reading? Good question. Philippians 3 and verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. This is what we were talking about, right? The confidence in my flesh. That is my strength, my smarts, my substance, my stock. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I was the Jew of Jews. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. If anyone, Paul would say, would think he could have confidence in the flesh, in the strength, the smarts, the substance, the stock, I more so. I more so. But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. I suggest to you that what encapsulates that verse is surrender. Everything was just surrendered to him for Christ. He goes on to say, yet indeed I also count all things lost. I take that to mean the things that he had and even the things he didn't have. There may have been things that his heart longed for, that he desired, like you and I. We look around and say, well, I'd like that. Paul would say, everything I had, everything that made me who I was, I have counted loss. 
I have given up, I have surrendered for Christ. And not only everything I had, but, but all things, whatever there is out there, whatever it is that your heart longs for, I indeed count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's deny himself illustrated. That's self-denial, or as though Nate would say in the book, self-denial, we often think, I'll withhold chocolate from myself, or I'll withhold meat from myself, like Lent, right? I'm going to certain things, I'm going to give them up for God. That's not what's in view here. Not just simple self-denial, but denying my very self, full surrender, everything I have is with open hands to God. That's self-denial. But then listen to what he says. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That is illustrating taking up the cross. A cross of suffering, of sacrifice, of total surrender. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Follow me, he would say. This is not a call just to imitation but to intimacy, that you would be called into an intimate relationship like Ruth would say to Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Naomi, I just want to be with you. That's, I just want to be with you. I don't care where you go. I don't care where you lead me. I just want to gain Christ. I have five children, and each of them, especially my three darling little girls, have had periods in life where all they care about is just to be with me. It warms my heart. They just want to be with me. They think so highly of me. They don't care if the other kids are playing. They don't, it could be Legos. It could be TV. It could be anything. They could get an offer to go somewhere else. My little Lilla, she's three and a half. And she's just coming out of that stage. For us, it's usually about two to three, where all she wants is to be with me. I'm in the bathroom shaving. She just stand and hold my leg. I mean, how boring could that be? Uh, wherever you are, Daddy, I just want to be there. This is the call of Christ. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Lord, I just want to be with you. I just want to follow you. Wherever you lead me, I will go. This is the call of Christ. What does it take? It takes total surrender, denial of self, offering it all to God. This is true at salvation. We come with empty hands or else you cannot receive the gift. This is true for the Christian life. The successful Christian life is the life of surrender. It's not the life of strength. It's not the life of smarts. It's not the life where we gather substance or we lay hold to our stock, our heritage, our family ties. It's the life of surrender. This is the call of Christ. I just want to be with him. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. 
We're going to close very quickly. A.W. Tozer said, Being crucified means three things. First, the man who is crucified is facing only one direction. The man that is crucified. Things could go on behind him. He's facing one direction. He's pinned to the cross. Secondly, of, of the man that's crucified, he's on a cross and he's not going back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, we just sang. Lastly, and this I find most compelling, regarding the man on the cross, the man that is on the cross, the crucified man, has no further future plans of his own. All of his plans... Everything that he may have intended has been given up. You imagine the, 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 the criminals that were crucified. Total subjection to Rome. Total surrender. I just, I'm here. I'm totally subjected to the masters that are over me. Facing one direction. Having no future plans of my own. What this means is that all that we have is put to death. By that, I mean surrendered. I mean put out. Oh, Lord, you know my heart. I, at times, the flesh is there, and I long for things that I ought not long for. Oh, God, I confess that to you. I confess it to you. I surrender all of this to you. Okay. We're out of time. I want to close with just an encouraging thought. Perhaps you're here today and you're a bit discouraged. I know in reading this passage, I was challenged and at times discouraged. Boy, what the Lord is asking of me is severe, radical. Am I really doing that? No, I'm not. But my heart's desire, oh Lord, here's my heart. Please, I want to surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender, right? But on an encouraging note, think of this for just a moment as we close. I'm going to use this man, Peter. Think of this. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter then was there saying, Lord, far be it from you to go to the cross. Peter, no doubt, was there when, when the Lord Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter was there for it all. In Matthew 26, turn there for one moment as we close. Matthew 26, 33 to 35. Peter even pledges his allegiance to the Lord. Peter says in Matthew 26, 33, even if all are made to stumble because of you, Lord, I will never be made to stumble. Ooh, those are serious words. But Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny yourself like I've asked you to do. Ah, that's not what it says. You will deny me three times. Peter said, oh, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've sat under a convicting message like I have many times in my life. And I just said, Lord, I I'm here for you. And then some time passes and I wander. 
This was Peter. You turn forward, maybe a page if you have to, 26 in verse 56 of Matthew. After the Lord Jesus Christ is in the garden of Gethsemane, the very end of Matthew 26, 56 says, then all the disciples, I can only interpret that one way. That means all the disciples, Peter included, forsook him and fled. Peter, deny yourself. Follow me. Peter forsakes him and flees the very opposite of following. Matthew 26 at verse 69. You know where I'm going with this. Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were with him, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. He was a follower. That's what she was saying. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know the man. Peter, deny yourself. And here is Peter illustrating for us what denial is in his denial of the one who called him to deny himself and to follow him, doing the very opposite of what the Savior had called him to. Have you ever felt this way before? Have you ever been in Peter's shoes? Oh, I failed. It says Peter went out and wept bitterly when he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus. I'm so thankful to tell you that the story doesn't end there. Look at Matt, uh, I'm sorry, John 21, and I promise this is the last passage. John 21, some of the very last Recorded words of Jesus. There's this exchange. There's this scene where it's really, as one preacher said, John 21 is all about the restoration of Peter. That's the whole purpose because the gospel could have ended at John 20. But here we are in John 21. We, I would have liked to go through some of it. We don't have the time. But listen to verse 19. This he, that is Jesus, spoke, signifying by what death he, that's Peter, would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, Jesus, he said to him, Peter, follow me. Follow me. The Lord is in the business of using broken people. If you're here today... And the call of Christ seems so severe that it discourages you. I, I just plead with you, surrender it to him. God is a God of restoration. Peter was restored to be one of the pivotal, crucial apostles of the church of God. What a tremendous story. What a tremendous help to people like you and me that have failed in following him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the joy that it is to know you. Indeed, we hear the words of our Savior pleading with us, follow me. The call goes out to all, O Lord, what a privilege to give everything up 
to be with him, to follow him. We give you thanks for the joy that it is to know him, to walk with him. We do do love you, Lord. We do believe, but, oh, God, help our unbelief, we pray. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.